When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Anna Davis. You're listening to Seven Pillars. This is a podcast where we have a special guest in every episode who takes us through seven of the most important things in their life. And by things, we mean cultural events or places or experiences or memories. Seven things that have really helped to shape them or have meant something to them in their life. And I'm very excited this week because our guest is a fine actor speaking to me all the way from the United States. It's Walton Goggins. Hello, Walton. Hello, Alan. Good to be here. Thank you very much for having me. It's so nice to have you. I can't believe I'm looking at you in a tiny window on my screen. For those of us in the UK, and uh, let me think, I'm trying to think what people would definitely know you from. Certainly the Hateful Eight, they'll have seen you in. People who may well may all know you from The Shield back in the day when you were in The Shield. Yeah. My favourite show... To me, when I look at you, I'm looking at Boyd Crowder. I'm looking right in the eyes of Boyd Crowder from you know, the, the brilliant FX series, Justified, in which you paid a truly wicked man. <laughs> but I'd be interested to hear your take on Boyd Crowder. And currently we have on Sky Television over here a terrific series called The Righteous Gemstones. Oh, good. Oh, yeah, that is there. Yeah, that's there, right? That's running here right now. And that oh. uh, with the wonderful Danny McBride and John Goodman and yeah. and your good self in the mix there playing, uh, well, a, a preacher, but a jealous man. Yeah, a bit of a charlatan, you know? I don't know. I mean, yeah, yeah. Baby, baby Billy Freeman. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, when that kind of came down, I mean, uh, Danny, Danny's like, my brother, all those guys, David Gordon Green and Jody Hill, and because I love them and I love everything that Rough House Pictures, which is kind of their their production company. You know, I've been fans of theirs for such a long time, and and they did this show called uh, Eastbound and Down. Yeah, love Eastbound and Down. And it's so funny and so ridiculous <laughs> and so poignant. You know, I mean, really, like the the way in which they're able to kind of vacillate between both of these worlds and and hit you right with a gut punch when you least expect it. I um. I, you know, I, I just thought, you know, if I ever get an opportunity to, to meet this guy like Danny or get to play with him, maybe I think something special might happen. You know, it's like one of your heroes. You know, I've gotten to work with most of my heroes over, over my career, but Danny kind of eluded me. And and, um, and <laughs> there was this period I had to get some braces put on my teeth. I just decided to. And right when that happened, they uh, Danny said they called and said, look, man, there's this role and he's bound and down and we want you to come in for it. And I said, yeah, you know, okay, but I got these braces on. I'm not gonna get, I'm not gonna take them off. And uh, they said, well, just come in. And I walked in, and there were like seven. It was me 
and seven comics from Saturday Night Live, you know? And it's like, man, what, what am I, what the fuck am I doing here? Like, come on, man. But I walked in and I just, I had a long conversation with him about the thing that he was missing in his show. <laughs> That's how audacious, I said, look, it's a great show and you're great in it, but you're missing something. And this is what you're missing. And what an asshole. And, and, uh, and so we, uh, you know, I, I read and, and we just had a great time and, and I wound up not getting it. They, they gave it to Jason Sudeikis. And, um, but, but we just became friends, you know, and, and through a really good friend of ours, uh, Sam Rockwell and Leslie Bibb, we were at this party and he said, Hey man, I wrote this, I wrote this thing and I, I want you to do it with me. And, and then he sent it over when I was doing the hateful eight and it was vice principals. And, uh, and I just, I, I got it. It was just something that was like, I, I know what to do with this. Like I know, and I, and I want to do it with him. And, you know, over the course of that year, we just became like best friends. And, uh, and then he wrote, you know, this, the, the righteous gemstones. And, and he, he said, look, I want you to play my 70 year old uncle. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah, man, I'll do that. Is that what you think of me? You think I look 70 years old? Well, there really? was a moment when you climbed out of a bath in the nude and I'm assured that that's a body double. <laughs> you know what? And somebody said like, literally this casting director, this friend of mine like emailed me like after watching it and she said, look, I got to say, Walton, it's amazing. And, and you are, man, my God, your body, it, it looks so good. I thought you, you think that's my body? <laughs> what my body looks like? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it worked out. It worked out. We're having a good time. You're having a good time. And you did, there was a moment in that show where you had a scene that's your sister is married to the kind of the head preacher, the millionaire preacher. Yeah. And you're kind of on the outside of the family trying to get back in and get a slice of the pie, as it were. And and so you're trying to persuade her, even though she's just found out she's pregnant, to go on tour with your musical act. Yeah. And she's reluctant to do that. But the way you took that scene, which, I mean, it's a very funny show and there's comedy most of the way along, but you found all the beats in there to really bring it home how much pain he was in and how hurt he was as a sibling to be excluded. You found that those moments, and I really just wanted to compliment you on your acting, really, in that scene. And I did, when you said to him, oh, I think there's something missing, I think you were right, actually, with Eastbound and Down. And he's very, very good at finding that... Uh, the guy who's a bit over the hill who had something and it's slipping away from him. That kind of desperation in middle age. A lot yeah. of Saul Bellow novels have that guy in them. And his comedies are... And, and your character's a bit like that in, in Righteous Gemstones. But you just found something where, where the real pain was there. That there, was a prop, there were flashes of anger. There were flash, flashes of Boyd Crowder appearing. <laughs> in another show, you might have just got a gun out. Yeah. 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 You know, I don't know. I, I think that, I mean, I kind of look for that in everything that I do, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's like, I'm not the first person to say this, but you know, in, in any given day, I mean, aren't we, you know, in our own story, uh, we're the lead of our own story and, and, and the good guy and, and the antagonist, right. I mean, in any kind of 24 hour period. And I, I think that when you're approaching a story, I don't even like the word actor, to be quite honest with you, man, I'm more comfortable with the word, you know, storyteller, because then it kind of mm -hmm. takes the onus off well, that's your discipline. You're, this is your box and you're an actor. That's what you are. And, and I, and I think the same thing for everyone, uh, like, like on the crew, if you kind of just lump yourself all together as a, as a storyteller, then, then all of a sudden you're participating and just the ongoing evolution or the ongoing kind of craft of, of telling stories, which is one of the oldest things that we have, 
Yeah, well, that's fascinating to hear you say that, and especially as you've been involved in some very successful long-running series where your your character is so entwined with the other characters, it is part of a a bigger thing than just coming in for a couple of days, doing a role, or maybe a couple of weeks and leaving. You're involved with a group of people in a, almost like a family. The, the relationship between Boyd and uh, Raylan Givens is really, really memorable. Yeah, well, thank you very much for saying that. You know, it's based on a short story by Elmore Leonard. and um... A brilliant short story in which Boyd uh, comes to a sticky end. Though Boyd is so elusive in Justified, it felt like he's... I mean, every series you thought, this surely they're going to get him. Yeah, well, they did, you know, in the pilot, they got him. Like I died in the pilot. That, that was kind of what it was supposed to be. It was just supposed to be that. And it was a, you know, a long conversation with, uh, with the creators of that show. And it was kind of a few back and forths about, you know, whether or not I really wanted to do the pilot, to be quite honest with you, because I didn't, I, I felt it was like one dimensional on, on a number of levels. And he was, Boyd Crowder was just kind of used as a, uh, a, a device as well written as, as Elmore, wrote that character and and as eloquent and strange as he was you know there were there were a couple of lines that that i kind of needed in there in the pilot to uh not to redeem him but uh, but i think to make him you know more dynamic and more more believable and uh and i and i think boyd crowder at the end of the day like uh, is not a racist you know like it was in the pilot you know he's a person who needs an audience he's a populist maybe mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, and and there's a there's a line that that Raylan Givens says to Boyd Crowder in the pilot. I don't think you believe anything that comes out of your mouth. You know, I don't I don't think you believe uh, what you're saying. And it's true. And that was kind of like a part of of Boyd Crowder's journey from the very very beginning. It's very interesting because I mean I, I'm taking you back so many years now in your career to when that began. So apologies for that, but. It's a big call to play the, the white supremacist with a swastika tattoo. Some might see that as a, as a bold step and to, to tackle that, to take that on and to portray that really truthfully, for real, you know, not, not just in a comic way and something. Well, well, ultimately, like, you know, that was really just kind of, that was the pilot, you know, mm -hmm. and that was kind of it. And, uh, and then, you know, I died in the pilot and, uh, and the last line kind of uttered, from Raylan Gibbs in the pilot was uh, one of, of empathy and contextualizing kind of what history means to people. And he says, you know, we dug coal together mm -hmm. and, and that, you know, that kind of usurps everything. And then once, you know, it kind of came out and it kind of tested, they, they asked me if I would, uh, if I would continue. And I said, yeah, but I, I really want to know like what happens between these two men. I'm, I'm really curious about this story and, and how that would evolve like over time. And, and I said, you know, my, my one condition is that, uh, that I have autonomy over, over this guy and, and that, that I help you shape this person going forward. And because it, it didn't exist, he didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and he wasn't just that it was really, you know, kind of one episode that turned you know, the next time you meet him, you know, he's a, he's a, a person who's given his life to, to Jesus, you know, to God. I mean, that's what happens, you know, to a lot of people that have a near death experience. And then at the end of that first season, he, uh, after giving his life to, to God and, and albeit his way, right? Yes. Uh, you know, he's, he's sorely disappointed. We, I could talk to you about Justified 
for a long time and I and I if you haven't seen it please watch it it's wonderful but I want to push on I want to get into your seven pillars and uh, let's start uh, with a film choice you've made uh, in fact you've come up with a couple of films so I'll leave it to you which one you'd like to talk about first um, there's The Passenger a 1975 film a very interesting movie with Jack Nicholson which I watched today and then and then a real classic with Paul Newman and Robert Redford, Butch Cassidy, and the Sundance Kid. Why, why these movies, Walton? Well, you know, I think it's so hard, to be quite honest with you. You know, it's like seven pillars. How do you reduce, you know, your experience to kind of seven pillars? I mean, there are 7,000 pillars, right? And mm-hmm. and and movies, like if, if we were having this conversation, I was in my 20s, they would be, you know, Tender Mercies or The Great Santini or, or Places in the Heart or something like that. And then it would have been different, you know, in, in the 30s. And now that I'm, you know, I'm in my 40s, you know, kind of looking back at like, well, well what kind of means something to you? I'm actually relocating. Uh, I'm still going to have a, a place here in Los Angeles, but I'm moving my family kind of out of L.A. And and I just uh, watched The Long Goodbye, you know, with Elliot Gould. And, and I mean, like, that's extraordinary. So I, you can answer this question a million different ways. But but over the course of COVID, I've uh, watched a lot of movies with my son. You know, my he's 10 years old. And uh and we've just kind of been going through them. And I, you know, I showed him, you know, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And and I was just riveted kind of watching him watch this story. And I, and I was thinking about like, well, you know, why? You know, why does this story kind of mean so much to, to me and, and watching him kind of see it? And it really kind of comes down to identity, you know, and trying to have a, a new start in life. Trying to run from your past in order to kind of reconcile at the very end who you are as a person in the world now, right? And I, and I and I think the same thing kind of applies to the to the passenger, you know, and and what Jack Nicholson's character was kind of doing in that story, you know, when he assumed the identity of of a dead man um, because it was he wasn't happy in his life. That's right. Just for people who haven't seen the passenger, and what happens is Jack Nicholson is in a hotel room next door to someone who very who resembles him. Yeah, and uh, this guy dies in the, in the hotel room, and Jack Nicholson, in a, in just in a, it seems like it's just in a moment he makes a decision. Having he's in the hotel room, this guy's a stranger. He finds his passport, and he swaps the photos over, and he assumes his identity, beginning a new life in a moment's decision. He's in Africa, isn't he? Yeah, and uh, he comes back to then he's in Europe. Anyway, the guy's life turns out to be extremely complicated. He gets himself into a web of deceit. Uh, his, his real life wife back in London comes looking for him, and he cannot escape his past. Rather like Butch and Sundance can't really escape because they bring their personalities with them to Bolivia and everywhere they go. The first thing they yeah. want to do when they get there is rob a bank. Yeah, yeah, and you, and you, uh, yeah, that's exactly right. But they're they're but they're all they're robbing a bank in order to live a life without having the need to rob a bank, right? It's like, what, when is it enough? Like, what is the life that you kind of choose? They're, they're so playful at the beginning. They're robbing trains. They're joking with the guy who won't open the door. Butch Cassidy's never shot anyone in his life. It's an adventure. It's childlike. Maybe that's why it appealed to a boy. And, and, and I mean, and it's so, it's so funny. I mean, it's so unbelievably funny. And like the opening shot, like the opening scene in that movie, when they're playing cards and, and the guy calls Robert Redford a cheat, uh, the Sundance kid a cheat. And the only thing that Butch Cassidy says is, that, you know, uh, invite us to stick around. Yeah. But I don't want you to invite us to stick around. And then he finds out his name and he says, 
you guys want to stick around? No, we can't. We've got somewhere we can go. <laughs> like it, it's just, it's unbelievable. Like the whole movie and, and, you know, Catherine Ross, man, and Paul Newman, Robert Redford, they're just at the top of their game. And they're so unbelievably charming. And it's, and it's so funny. And, and they, you know, the first bank robbery is a success. The second one doesn't kind of go so well. And, and it reveals that people are kind of looking for them. And then they're just on the run. And again, that 30, 30 minute kind of uh, part in the middle where they're being chased is, it's almost no dialogue. Like nothing is really being said. And the tension that you kind of, that he created uh, with these two men being chased is extraordinary. Well, the way I figure it, we can either fight or give. If we give, we go to jail. I've been there already. But if we fight, we stay right where they are and starve us out. Or go for position, shoot us. Might even get a rock slide started and get us that way. What else can they do? They could surrender to us, but I wouldn't count on that. They're going for position, all right. Better get ready. Kid? The next time I say, let's go someplace like Bolivia, let's go someplace like Bolivia. Next time. Ready? No, we'll jump. Like hell we will. No, it'll be okay. If the water's deep enough, we don't get squished to death. They'll never follow us. How do you know? Would you make a jump like that and you didn't have to? I have to, and I'm not gonna. Well, we got to, otherwise we're dead. They're just gonna have to go back down the same way they come. Come on. Just one clear shot, that's all I come want. Come on. Uh -uh. We got to. Nope. Get away from me. Why? I wanna fight them. They'll kill us. Maybe. You wanna die? Do you? All right. I'll jump first. Nope. Then you jump first. No, I said. What's the matter with you? I can't swim! <laughs> Why are you crazy? The fall will probably kill you. And then they make it to Bolivia, and at the very end of the story, after kind of recreating their life down there and kind of living in the same way, you know, running from their past, trying to become different people, they both look at each other in this cantina and they're, you know, they're outed. And it's like, well, let's let's do it. You know, this is who we are, and let's go out in a blaze of glory. You know, that's not going to change. It's not going to change, although there was a slight feeling, wasn't there, that they didn't realize quite how many Bolivian soldiers were waiting outside. They did. I think they thought they could shoot their way out, get to the horses and run. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there were about a thousand men, and there was a lovely scene where they shout, the Bolivian army are shouting, Dos hombres? Dos? <laughs> See, <laughs> see, si, si, dos. And they, you've called all of us for dos hombres. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Smart Food Popcorn. Some decisions aren't the best, like skipping ahead in your favorite podcast. Think of all the banter you'll miss. The lore in the making. Luckily, Smart Food Popcorn is a no-brainer. Deliciously tasty and available in a variety of fun flavors. 
It's a smart decision every time. Smart food. Add smart. To learn more, visit smartfood.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The other thing I've forgotten about that film, that beautiful film, as you say, this, that chase sequence is amazing. So often they're just dust in the distance. That's it. The pursuers, as if they will not, they're just relentless. Really, surely you're going to let us go now. We've got no, they never, but there's eventually. They decide to go to South America and they go to South America by a steamer from New York. And I'd forgotten this whole bit. Yeah. They get to New York and then there's this strange montage of kind of Victorian era black and white photographs, very reminiscent of the uh, opening credits to Cheers. Yeah, yeah, it is. You're right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> with the guys in the in the Boston bar yeah. posing for photos and they've and it's sort of primitive Photoshop where they've got uh, Redford and Newman in these pictures, and you and I was watching it with my wife, Katie, and saying, "Why don't they just stay in New York? They could just lose yeah. themselves in New York." I mean, that's yeah. what people did. People, boatloads of people were arriving into New York all the time, yeah, late nineteenth, yeah. early twentieth century. Just lose yourself in your. You'll probably run into Don Corleone. And they were having a good time, man. They were having a great time. They were having a great time. Unbelievable, <laughs> spending all kinds of money. They had a terrific time. I suppose that's the point of, of showing that montage. They had a terrific time on the steamer down to South America. They were dressing up in tails and going to dinners. So by the time they got to Bolivia, as you say, they'd spent all their money. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then, then they wind it. And then as soon as they kind of pull up and it's like, this, this is the ranch. Like, this is what, <laughs> this is why you wanted to come to Bolivia. But see, but so the, the, so the difference to me, like between that and then you look at the passenger and I, and I suppose all of this kind of has something to do with my childhood and I'll get to that in a minute and, or just not even my childhood, but just my, my life and the journey of my life and, and these you know, music about this subject or movies about this subject or stories, novels about this subject, all of those things are, are what mean, I guess, most to, to me as a, as a, as a person, but, uh, but the, the ending of the passenger and what, you know, Antonioni did, did with that experience. And then visually it's, it's extraordinary. I'm, I'm no reason to kind of re kind of hash that or, or kind of break that down because it's been done by people that are, uh, much smarter than, than, than I am. Uh, but the, but the one thing that, that stays with me more than anything is the last, I think it's the, like the last two lines in that in that movie. And um, if you haven't seen it, I don't want to give it away, but something happens uh, to Nicholson's character and his wife, who's been you know looking for him, you know, walks into this room and says, you know, I never knew him. Mm -hmm. And the woman, the young woman, Maria uh, Schneider. Um, yeah, Maria Schneider. That's right. They ask the same question: Do you recognize this man? And and she says, Yes. And it's like, well, so then who was he? You know, I mean, I mean, was he the person that, that had that wife and that was a, you know, a journalist and, and had a, a child or or was that all a lie? I mean, it was him on, on some level. Right. I mean, that's that was the life that he had lived. And then he had this moment to kind of fully kind of uh, step out of that identity into another. 
and become something that he never thought was possible. And, and, you know, it was kind of in those moments uh, over the course of this movie where, where he blossomed. And, and in some ways, I, I think he knew what was going to happen when he, when he set up this second meeting. You know, uh, I don't want to give too much away if you haven't, if you haven't seen, if your listeners haven't seen it. You have to see it. It's extraordinary. It is extraordinary. And this, this real fantasy about changing identity, as you say, the final sequence is very cleverly done and beautifully done in a kind of no spoilers way to try and describe this scenario where he's in a hotel and that's his wife finds him and he's in a hotel. But the, the, the hotel is in Spain and so it's a warm climate, so there are, the windows are open, but there are bars on the windows. The hotel is like a... It's like a jail. And the camera at one point is inside and another point is outside looking in at him. And you're thinking, is he, is he going to escape? Or... It's one of the most extraordinary shots ever composed. Yeah. And I, you know, and I, and I think, you know, for me, like I'm, like, I'm a poor kid from Georgia, you know, and I, and I grew up the way that I kind of grew up. And, and, um, and, and I've talked about this in interviews for a long time, but I was raised predominantly by women. And, um, and we didn't have a lot, you know, but we had each other and uh, we had a good sense of humor. And um, and it was uh, hard. And I I was alone a lot as a, as a kid and kind of left in my own devices and, and lived in my head a lot. And um, and I so desperately wanted to be someone other than who I was, you know, and, and what I mean by that, I, I wasn't ashamed of my the little house that I lived in, you know, uh, but but at the time, I you know, I, I, I was, you know, there was a there was a time where, you know, people would want to come pick me up from my house. This girl wanted to come pick me up from my house in high school. And I, and I told her I lived at a, at a different address, you know, mm -hmm. and I went and literally hid in a ditch when she kind of pulled into the, to the driveway and jumped out and started walking, you know, down the driveway as if it was my house and the light came on and I just jumped in the car and said, let's go, we got to go, let's get out of here. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and you kind of reconcile kind of like who that was. And I, and I was, I, I always wanted to see the world. I just wanted to be uh, I saw myself as someone who lived in the world and called the world their home. They didn't come from kind of one place, but they came from every place at the same time. And um, and I I wanted to create this character for myself. You know, this person who was an autodidact and and was extremely well read and um, and could talk about Paris like in a way and in, in such a like a uh, like a nonchalant way, like everything was kind of thrown away because. He had been to all of these restaurants a thousand times, right? And I wanted to be that guy, you know, and I wasn't destined to be that guy. I didn't come from, that wasn't a, an, uh, like an option for me really, you know? And, uh, and over the course of, of my life, I've become that guy. And, and I, I have been all over the world uh, multiple times and spent times in, in all of these places. But I have, uh, what I've never given up and what, what I'm uh, incapable of doing is being the person who, who talks about these experiences in, in a way that, that they're not meaningful anymore, that they've just become old hat. You know, I, I still, whenever I'm in the world, I'm, I'm still revert to being a child and, and having like childlike wonder about the places that I'm in or the conversations that I'm having with people. And it's only, you know, really in my mid-30s, where I was able to reconcile the person that I was from the place that I come from and the person mm -hmm. that I am now. And um, yes. yeah, and it's still my life's journey. It's fascinating to hear you talk about that. And I wonder what it was that got you out from Georgia. Did you go somewhere to study? Did you go to college? What moved you on? 
You know, I, I just I knew that I wanted to get out and I didn't know how that was possible. It wasn't going to be sports. You know, I mean, I was a mm-hmm. relatively good athlete, but, uh, you know, I wasn't going to get a scholarship for that. And, and I, I, I did. I was able to I had the grades. I, I was pretty smart and, you know, kind of self-taught and um, went to college. And I won't go too much on this story because I've, I've said this before, but I got an invitation from American Express to get a, uh, a card to go into debt, basically. Like, welcome to capitalism, <laughs> son. You know, here you go. And uh, and over the course of, uh, you know, like getting this thing in the mail, looking at it for me, uh, they, they an offer kind of came with it. And the offer was uh, uh, two round trip tickets for ninety nine dollars east of the Mississippi um, or one hundred ninety nine dollars west of the Mississippi. And um, back then, you know, a ticket to Los Angeles from from Atlanta was like twelve hundred dollars. And so, you know, it was like two opportunities to get out to L.A. for two hundred bucks. And I, you know, I had that I had that in the bank. And uh, and I said, that's it. You know, I'm going to I'm going to quit school. I'm going to leave school and I'm going to I'm going to get out of here and go find myself. And and so that's that was really kind of the catalyst for, for me to kind of begin my journey. And wow, that's amazing. Well, and it's fantastic to hear you talk about that. It, it's so interesting. I think it'd be a good moment then to move on to a favorite place for you in the world. We've talked about those two wonderful films about wanting to change an identity. Tell me about Morocco, and what Morocco means to you. Okay, <laughs> you know, along the lines of the passenger for your your audience that hasn't uh, watched that movie, it starts you know in the desert, right? Mm-hmm. And for me, when I when I moved to Los Angeles, um, you know, I, I was always kind of responsible for myself. You know, the buck stopped with me, and and I knew that early on. Like I I had one person that I could depend on, and that was me. Not that I didn't have a loving family. Not that I wasn't fully supported by my mom and my friends. They just didn't have the means, you know. Nobody was going to pay my rent. And uh, no one was going to ask me to study. It was up to me. And so I, you know, spent the first 10 years of my experience in Los Angeles really kind of understanding what it was I was asking myself to do. You know, I didn't have a, I didn't have a scholarship to uh, Juilliard or, 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 or one of these other schools. Uh, for me, my experience just kind of came uh, genetically, you know, I was kind of born with uh, uh, a curiosity about the world and, and uh, a deep feeling uh, towards the world. And uh, and then I got into class uh, in Los Angeles and I studied with two guys, a guy by the name of Harry Master George and, and David the Grant. And and I, I took what I, I do very seriously, you know, from early on, my my teacher at the time said, look, man, you better become I hate to use the word good, but you better you better work harder than everybody else in the room because you don't have the looks. And, uh, and I, and he was right. He's like, look at you. And so, so I just kind of took that to heart and, and, and started just studied for, for 10 years. And I, and I was able to work, you know, uh, really as soon as I got to Los Angeles. And, uh, but after that 10 years of studying, um, year, like three or four of the shield, I said, now it's time for me to, to look at me, you know, I got to go inside. Um, and I had had something kind of happen in my life, but, uh, a rather, um, I say a tragic event that's kind of like uh, an understatement, but but something that forced me to kind of go inside and to begin kind of re-evaluating uh, kind of my life. And Morocco was kind of the first place to, to do that. You know, it's like, I got to get out of here. I got to go find out who I am. I got to see what the world is about, um, not through a job, but because I want to go. And, uh, and I, I booked this uh, ticket to Morocco. You know, this was just when cell phones were, kind of introduced and the texting was like ABC, DEF, <laughs> like that. And, uh, and I, I worked with this photographer, um, Albert Watson, and, and I knew that he, you know, spent a lot of time in Morocco and made this book for them. And I texted his, his assistant from the plane. I said, look, man, I'm going to Morocco. And he said, okay, man, you know, we got you covered. 
and, and I landed in this country and, um, and, and this, you know, got to this place that I had kind of found, right. This was not really, I mean, the internet was there, but it wasn't the, the all of finding out a trip or planning a trip all none of that really existed. And, um, and I, and I stayed in this, uh, this hotel in Marrakesh and, uh, and there was a knock, you know, on the door the next morning and, and I had no idea who it was and they came up and, and got me and, and it was really kind of like my man in Morocco. And, uh, and this, oh, this nice. guy, yeah, it was extraordinary. So someone helped you out. Yeah, he did. And he took me around and he had worked for Albert and, uh, and he said, okay, this is, you know, you got to ask yourself why you're here. Like, what are you looking for? And, uh, and I really didn't have the answer to that question, but we spent, you don't know, uh, 10 days just kind of hanging out in Marrakesh. And, uh, and then I got a car and then took off, you know, and kind of just explored, the the whole country and and I just kind of put myself I didn't know who I was I didn't know what kind of traveler I was I just knew that I'm I'm best when I don't have a plan and um, and I'm just open to the the world around me and um, and then you know for the next three weeks of that that experience you know driving around the country you know I had some of the most incredible experiences of my life you know and really kind of set the tone for the next uh, almost twenty years of my life that's very interesting I had a similar trip I went to Vietnam. Mm. And I went for three weeks after I'd finished a big filming job. I was playing a TV series here and uh, just wanted to go away by myself. Right. And landed in Hanoi and I had booked a hotel for two nights. They have amazing buildings there, a lot of French colonial architecture. Unbelievable. But after that, I didn't really know what I was going to do. And so I just took it day by day and... It sounds to me like I had, it was a similar experience to the one that you had. It was something that I needed to do. It was a place I'd never been. I love the vibrancy of the country and the people. I was 39. It was, maybe it's a bit early for a midlife moment, but it was definitely something I needed to do to spend that time completely away, didn't contact anybody I knew, didn't meet anybody I knew. Yeah. And just took in something completely different. I, I would watch people living their lives, really watching them properly somehow. It, it sounds like you had that kind of a trip. And do you do that? Are you able to continue doing that now that you have a, a family and you have, uh, when I say these responsibilities, the, these the joys kind of in your life, or do you, do you still find the time to kind of have those experiences alone? And are you good being alone? I, I am good being alone. Uh, I mean, I was alone a lot growing up and I had kind of by necessity in some ways, but it sounds again, a little like your time, but uh, no, less so um, having the three children and, but I do uh, harbor some ambition to go out away, but I, I've got these kids I want to take with me and see them see things. Me, I, me I'm too. sure you know what it feels like when you yeah, have a child, incredible. you want to watch them watching stuff. Exactly. You want yeah. to watch them reacting. You almost can't believe well, you haven't seen that before, heard that before, yeah. or tasted that before. Yeah. So that's what I look forward to is sharing experiences with them. Yeah. I've done stand-up touring to Australia and New Zealand around the UK with the kids at home. And I, and I love being on stage. I love performing. But immediately I want to know what they're doing. I want to see a picture of them. I want to FaceTime them. Yeah. It's a very, very powerful kind of invisible cords it is isn't it yeah it's a it's just a tricky life you know it, it is uh in whatever discipline you are creatively you know when you walk out that door and you say goodbye um and not gender specific i mean whatever and whatever you do it's it is it is lonely out there and there are rhythms that you kind of have whenever you're on the road that you just have to fall into in order to keep your sanity 
I did this show, um, this wonderful uh, writer, director, Matthew Parkhill, and it was a show called Deep State. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and we were in South Africa and we were in Morocco and, and just some unbelievable actors, uh, from your, your country. And, uh, and I went back to Morocco and I mean, like, like this is my, my first trip, you know, after kind of like, you know, hanging out and, and, uh, you know, stopping on the side of the road to use the bathroom, a farmer kind of walks up and he's like, she, you know, and he's like, uh, looking at me and I'm like, hi, hello, sorry about that. Uh, what are you doing here? <laughs> he didn't speak English and, and, you know, and, and I didn't speak French or Arabic and, and, you know, but you don't need language really, you know, you just, uh, you just need your eyes. And I said, do you mind, can I come home with you? You know, is that okay? Can I come back with you? And, and he knew exactly what I was saying. And he said, yeah, you know, come back. And, and I hung out with him and his, uh, three daughters and his wife and for like, I don't know, 24 hours. I didn't spend the night there, but, but I, you know, I hung out with them for like, like 15 hours, just kind of checking out their world. And, and then I was making my way to the south, to the desert, and uh, and I, I wanted to get there for Christmas. That was very important to me. And and I pulled up, and I was late. And and uh, I, I I pulled in, got this guy, drove like a, like a wildcat through the desert, right at the edge of the Sahara or whatever. And, and there are the you know the camps or whatever where you where you get your supplies and your before you go into the desert. And the sun was kind of going down. It was Christmas Eve. And, uh, and they said, well, you know, welcome, welcome. Um, but you're, you know, you're too late. You can't go out. You can't go out tonight. I said, no, I'm going to go out tonight. No, I have to go out tonight. So if you guys don't want to go with me, I'm going to take this, I'm going to take this camel and I'm going to go out by myself. And they said, who is this fucking American? Like what the fuck is wrong with you? I said, no, man, I'm going. And I walked in, I bought like, like four bottles of wine. And, uh, uh, and, uh, and some water and came back out. And then this one guy, his name was Hassan. Uh, you know, he stepped up and he like, you know, motioned like, I'll, I'll take him. And then we went out and we walked, man, for like, I don't know, six, six hours, five hours or whatever. And, and then it was a full moon and you could just see the whole, you know, the shapes of the sand dunes by the moonlight. And then we arrived at this place. And I'm telling you, Alan, like I spent the next, I spent four days with this man. We didn't speak the same language. Mm-hmm. And I knew everything about his life. I knew about the troubles that he had with his father. I knew about his marriage. I knew about his children. We would spend like 10 hours a day without talking. And then at night, you know, I would drink and, and just open up. And we just looked at the stars and the skies. And, and I, you know, I haven't seen him uh, to this day, but he's still a very good friend of mine, you know. And I wrote one letter to him, and I never heard back from him. But if I ever ran into him again, or even if I don't, I've got a, that friend in the world, you know. And that's kind of how I've lived my life. And, and I got to go back with this story, I guess is what I'm saying, with Deep State. We went back to uh, Morocco, and I got to, to visit all of these places again. We were there for, for a while but I got to visit them again uh, in a very different place in my life. And, and it was, uh, yeah, it was extraordinary, but it was, it was life affirming really, you know, it was a book bark. It is. And it, and it, and it is extraordinary because it is completely out of the ordinary and, and some, some days in your life loom like big planets in your own personal solar systems. And they, yeah. they are, these are, perhaps it really is what we mean by, by a pillar, by something that is firmly there that you're tied to somehow. Yeah. Uh, that's a wonderful story. Now, you're driving through Morocco, and uh, I imagine you have music in the car. 
let's move to your music choices let's get into where you've got it you've sent me a few different things and i've been listening today to bob dylan's soundtrack to the film pat garrett and billy the kid and it's it's beautiful isn't it really i would never have it never would have occurred to me on my streaming service to click on that so thank you for that and uh, tell me about how you how you feel about that music? You know, I, I was introduced to this. Uh, this it's just it's the soundtrack to Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, you know, by Bob Dylan. And um, and you know, again, it's so hard to answer these questions. You know, like seven pillars in like one song. There are a million songs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but but I suppose you know, and answering it honestly, it's like what what do you kind of what do you go back to? You know, um, when you're alone or when you're with other people, and and what kind of frame of mind has put you in? And, and this soundtrack just opens me up, you know, every single time I hear it. And um, if you haven't heard it, you know, you, you should. It, it might be familiar to you and it might not. And I'm curious, like, to your listeners, like, what kind of, what do you see? Like, what do you feel? I mean, I, whenever I listen to music, I listen to it uh, visually. You know, I, I think about it in the context of a, of a movie or a story or, like, uh, the story of my own life or the story that I'm living kind of, like, in that moment. And every single time I hear the main theme, you know, which I think is like, like there's the first track and then Billy one and the final theme. I mean, if you listen to those three songs, for me, uh, it, it evokes uh, like a feeling of, you know, it's the West, it's wide open spaces. And, and that's, uh, you know, what I've experienced like here in America, driving across this country four or five times. And it just, it warms me up and it feels like anything is possible. You know, it's as big the music is as big as the world around you and um and that's why i just kind of keep going back to it i'd listen to it in in morocco yeah i listen to it everywhere really some of it's instrumental some of it's uh bob dylan's inimitable voice is a real mixture but it's a it's a beautiful thing i wonder if you came to it through a love of bob dylan or was it the film at first that took you to it yeah a woman i came to it through a woman Mm -hmm. you know like uh this this uh this a very special person in my life you know my early 20s you know uh who's a little older than me uh really kind of opened me up and introduced me to things um that that i hadn't listened to i mean i I think that's where the best music kind of comes from right i mean you can discover it on your own or you're in another country and something comes on the radio but god i love sharing music with friends you know or or a spouse or you know something like something like that and uh, and she she played this album for me for the first time when we were uh we drove across country together and uh we were in new mexico uh heading up to santa fe and and I, maybe it was the place, maybe it was her, maybe it was the shitty Volvo we were in, or maybe it was a combination of all three, you know, and looking outside that window and listening to this music was, uh, it was a perfect marriage, you know, it was peanut butter and chocolate. <laughs> and, uh, and it's just stayed with me. And, and, uh, and I, I don't know, it just, it's very comforting. It, it reminds me of places in my life that I've been where, where I've been most happiest. to say that because sometimes with uh, with old music music that you might associate with the past sometimes it's a nice comfort 
And sometimes it triggers such strong emotion, it's almost unlistenable. There are some records that I loved as a teenager where I don't put them on anymore. What What would be one of the, what would, can you give me one? Oh, I used to listen to the jam a lot when I was a teenage boy in headphones. Mm. Loud. I can't really listen to the jam anymore. That was such no. an angry teenager. Uh, if I listen yeah, to Billy yeah, Bragg yeah. songs, if I listen to Brewing Up with Billy Bragg, I just get tears in my eyes immediately. <laughs> so yeah. I have yeah. to turn it off. Uh, but uh, uh, music, there's no doubt, uh, uh, more so than any art form, triggers those emotions in people almost instantaneously. I mean, I think there's some statistic where 95% of people, when asked, say that a piece of music has made them cry at some point in their life. That's pretty extraordinary. Yeah, that really is extraordinary. And it's universal, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, everybody kind of has the same, that same experience. Yeah. Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddle boards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Your skin refuses to be defined by age. That's why Agency designed Future Formula, a personalized anti-aging formula prescribed by a dermatology provider to treat fine lines, wrinkles, dark spots, and more. Agency has clinically proven ingredients like tretinoin, which is up to 20 times stronger than over-the-counter retinol. Future Formula by Agency. Get your first month free at withagency.com. That's W-I-T-H-A-G-E-N-C-Y.com. $4.95 shipping and handling subject to consultation. Subscription required. Cancel anytime. There's a, there's a song that because we are kind of like where we are uh, and, and how this, what we're living in has kind of changed our trajectory, geographically speaking, my family, um, you know, between uh, the long goodbye and, and the song Hollywood Hopeful by Loudon Wainwright about, about Hollywood and about his experience in Hollywood. Like, I can't stop listening to that now. You know, I listen to it almost every single day and it's just, uh, this real love of, of Los Angeles and this love letter to, to what this city is and, and, uh, and how kind of undefinable it is. And, and just thinking about my experience here, God, this has just brought up so much, man, <laughs> you know, for all of us. Well, it's a wonderful soundtrack. Uh, before we move away from music, just a quick mention for Micah P. Hinson, because you did uh, also mention an album of his that you, that you love that I thought maybe you'd like to speak about for a moment. Well, I, you know, I mean, if you've never heard of Mike P. Henson, I, no, I, I, I know he really, yeah. I mean, he mm -hmm. gets, uh, I think he gets some, some play in the UK. I think he has a, a, a representation in, in the UK. And I was, uh, uh, you know, my best friend, one of my best friends kind of introduced him to me. Um, and we were looking for music for this movie that we were doing. And uh, this is about like 15 years ago. And this, his first album was uh, Mike P. Henson and the Gospel of Progress. There is this, he's from Tennessee, this guy. And and it's extraordinary, like his the, the way in which he kind of uh, writes his lyrics and sings his songs and his the composition of music is so kind of outside of something that you would expect. And when I heard it for the first time, it was, you know, a loneliness, really, uh, that, that I that I find comforting. man. I, I like sad <laughs> songs. You know, I do. Uh, a lot I of like people sad, do. Not, yeah, man, that's exactly right. But it's but but his lyrics are, are beautiful. And there were three three songs on that on this first album called you know don't you forget i still remember and and you lost sight you know you lost and basically you lost sight of me and and you know again it kind of comes back to identity and kind of you know who who we are and 
and being seen for for who we are and seeing other people for who they are. And uh, check it out, Micah P. Henson. What do you think? What impressed me was, as a first album, it's very confident and assured. Yeah. Uh, he's a singer-songwriter of some talent, and it feels like he was perhaps ready to present these songs. There's some work gone in and some years learning the guitar, learning how to write right. songs. And, yeah, and, yeah, and it's, yeah, it's, it's an impressive as a debut album. So thank you for pointing me to that. And now the one thing from your choices that I have not been able to try that you've pointed me to, uh, and we're going to move on to your favourite foods now, are cat head biscuits. And I had to Google cat head biscuits. Yeah. And uh, this, I'm guessing, is something from your southern origins, something perhaps you had when you were a kid? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, right, you have those, those staples, right, from your childhood. And uh, my mom was a horrible cook. Like, she didn't cook. <laughs> She cooked nothing, like zero. She didn't cook eggs, you know. But the one thing that she did cook, you know, uh, were, were these were, were biscuits, and she cooked them better than anybody. And it's just, you know, it's a biscuit. I mean, it's flour and um, and Crisco, <laughs> you know, with a little and buttermilk. It's called a cat head biscuit because it, it, it they're made into the shape, pretty much the shape of a cat's head, right? Well, I mean, That's... it's my, you know they, they're as big as a cat head's head, right? A cat head, I mean, cat heads are big. I mean, catfish are big, and uh, and these biscuits are big, and uh, and it's just kind of a staple, really, like of a like a southern southern diet, and um, and it was just a big part of my childhood, and you just. You know, you you cut them open. Even they're better the the second day, and you stick them in the oven, put a little butter on them, and then you throw some uh, uh, like some tenderloin, you know, or some like some bacon on, it or something like that. It's it's I don't know. It's it's what sustained me in my childhood. It's, they're they're fantastic. Oh, that's wonderful. And your other favorite food that you've picked, uh, uh, Mexican food, right? Can I, you know, can I ask you something, Alan? Mm -hmm. Like. You've talked to a lot of interesting people over the years, right? Mm -hmm. And you've asked them these questions. Do you have an like an an ongoing kind of seven pillars list, like on your computer, or like that you print out ever so often? Because you can't possibly get to all of these in a in a day or a week or a year. I mean, do you just go back to it when you want something new? It's like what did, what did, what did it, what did they say? <laughs> I don't. What was that? What was that one song? It's a good idea. I mean, so far my experience of doing these. Uh, podcast the films and the music are really terrific it that yeah, people yeah, have yeah. pointed me towards things either that i saw once and forgotten or i'd never come across before right and and it's a real treat but i, I really do enjoy spending time with one person and feeling them feeling their way to the things that really matter to them you know that yeah uh why does that place really stay that music really stayed that bit of food i had as a kid has really stayed yeah and and it's i i really i love it i find it so interesting you know in, in a way we don't know ourselves do we what really counts <laughs> you know we're so busy i mean we're so, our days are too full our heads are too full yeah 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 it's true i don't but but then you know i don't know when once you, you start having a child you at least for me i started kind of counting backwards right and it's like wow well i'll be at this age when he's this old and what does that mean and how can i participate in his life in that way and what is well i started i had children a little a little later you know and um when you really kind of think about like the time that you have left on this planet and, and what you want to say with with the microphone as long as you kind of have it yeah it's nice to get into what really 
what really is important to somebody, what matters to them. It's interesting having children, though. One of the things, I don't know if you've had this experience, but you can slightly reappraise how you were as an eight-year-old yeah. or as a nine-year-old or as a 10-year-old. Or... Is that ever painful for you? Is that painful for you? Yeah, it has been at times. Yeah, me too. Um, they were bad experiences for me at eight, nine and 10. Um, some of which I've written about recently, but it's seeing my, I've got two boys and a girl and seeing them go through those ages and seeing their experience and remembering what happened to me and wondering how that could have happened and making, trying not to make mistakes, but whilst trying to avoid one pitfall, falling in another one. Right. <laughs> yeah. Getting it wrong every day. Yeah. It does cause you to kind of look afresh at your own life experience yeah. a little bit, brings things to, to the front of your mind. Yeah. Now tell me about this carne asada quesadilla. This is really like a kind of Mexican meat and cheese sandwich. Is that what we're dealing with? That's exactly what it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's no more complicated than that. It's skirt steak cut up really small and, uh, you know, thrown in a pan and, uh, and then put on a, on a beautiful corner flour tortilla with, uh, some, some white Mexican cheese. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, I, I grew up like my family. We uh, like like our our time together um, was often at kind of Mexican restaurants uh, in Atlanta, and mm -hmm. uh, and and it's uh, something that's kind of been with me since my my childhood. And uh, and you know my family likes to to drink a little bit and and a good margarita and a, and a great quesadilla and a good story um, is just fodder for a, a good time. And and as soon as you know you get to Los Angeles and this is the best. Mexican food in the world, you know, is made right here. And, and so, you know, I set out to kind of find my, my place, like what was going to be my little haunt to kind of have that experience. And, uh, and I found this restaurant called El Compadre here on sunset. And, um, and I've been eating that same steak quesadilla for from there for 25 years, you know, uh -huh. and started taking my son there, you know, when he was two years old and he's 10 now. So, like that's, that's our spot. And, and I, and I've been to this Mexican restaurant and had that meal wherever I wanted to study. And, and oftentimes I, I can study in a room full of people and, um, and it's just very quiet to me and soothing. Um, I've gone there like for celebrations when something great has happened in my life and had this meal and, and have gone in, in times of being in the worst pain of my life, you know, and, and finding comfort. At the end of the day, excuse my language, but it's fucking good, man. Like, it's really good. <laughs> you can have it like, and I've had it all over Mexico. It's the same thing. And it just makes me, makes me feel good. But you can't have that without a margarita. So, you know, those two things together. If you don't have it, try it. Oh, yeah, no, wonderful. And again, something really, something strong from your childhood that you've held on to carry giving you strength i i always think of uh, when i think of mexico i've never been to mexico but i the border trilogy by cormac mccarthy those three novels uh, yeah. which i listened to on audiobook you did which i think is the for me it was the best way because i can't remember the name of the actor who read them but he just takes you right there to the border you feel like you're on horseback when he says he leaned forward and he spat and he turned the horse and you feel completely like you're yeah. there yeah. And uh, and if you're listening to this and you haven't heard those or read those, get yourself a quesadilla 
and uh, and, 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 and turn in. on turn on Bob Dylan's uh, <laughs> soundtrack to Pat Garrett Billy the Kid Pat Billy the Kid exactly and, and open open all the pretty horses exactly that exactly that's the first brilliant one of that trilogy now for writing though you've gone somewhere else completely you've come to my country you've come to uh, late nineteenth century early twentieth century England uh, for a little bit of Rudyard Kipling. Yeah, you know, I mean, like you, you asked you asked that question again, and it's like, well, what you know, like if you're answering it honestly, <laughs> yeah, why, how how would you answer it? I mean, I I just read this unbelievable book, like maybe it's my new favorite by Giuseppe Lampedusa called The Leopard, mm-hmm. and it's uh you know uh, about the the reunification of Italy uh, in the mid 1800s, and and it's extraordinary. I I read this. Uh, Travels with Charlie by Steinbeck, which uh, means like the world to me. Oh, that's a lovely book. It's a great book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But but another another one of your countrymen, you know, Somerset Mom, mm-hmm. is you know my I named my son. We named our son. I named my son after him. Uh, his middle name is Somerset. Oh really? And um, yeah. And if I, I mean, we all have that book, right? I mean, if you're on a high street in London and you, what's the book that you're going to give to a friend, right? Mm-hmm. And and I and I have one that I go to, you know, time and time again, and it's The Moon and Sixpence. Like mm-hmm. that's you know what it means to kind of be an artist and uh, and what's kind of left in the in the in the wake of that experience. Um, if it's a single focus, if that's your pursuit, it's just an unbelievable story. But the thing that that I've always had with me, and I, I you know I brought a couple of these things out just in case I showed you, is this uh, a copy of this poem my mother gave me. Uh, you can't really see. There you go. Oh, so it's a it's a framed copy of of Rudyard Kipling's If. There. If, yeah, yeah, and it's just hung on my wall for. It's nice. It's a nice little item you she, have there. Yeah, she got it from a you know I don't know a yard sale or something like that, like mm-hmm. a long time ago. And then I had a copy of it. You know, I made it and kind of kept it in my wallet for a really long time. And I just look at it from time to time. And you know, I mean, it's not just me, but anybody has read this poem. If you really kind of look at your life. And, and you are experiencing some modicum of success or happiness or contentment, whatever, whatever that is in your life, you will have learned these things. <laughs> are you know, are you, and he, and he says them all here and it's written to a man. I mean, I don't want to take up your audience's time by reading it. They'll, they probably all read it. Maybe this is compulsory for you. Um, perhaps they have, but in a way, I think the thing that gets most remembered from me is if it's about treating triumph and disaster the two twin imposters the same. That's perhaps the best known line. But there are lines in there now, especially in the age of social media, about what it's like to be misrepresented or about to be being unfairly attacked for what you believe in or about really, it's a book about stoically sticking to your guns and doing what you think is right and being true to yourself and being honest and unwavering and even tempered and level headed and even tempered and level headed and seeing the forest for the trees. If you understand, if you see the big picture and like your, your place in it and you're able to kind of navigate these situations uh, in a way that, I mean, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too, mm-hmm. you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's really, there's a, there's a grace and a dignity to, to, to this poem that, that is some of the wisest words, most impactful words that I've ever I've ever read. And, and uh, you know, it's if you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and, to pitch and toss and lose and start at the beginning and never breathe a word about your loss. If you can, and this is the one, you know, this is the one that has served me better than anybody. This is the thing that I talk to my son about all the time. And it is, if you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue or walk with kings nor lose the common touch, like that's the thing. 
Mm-hmm. If you can be at home in any room, mm-hmm. and and you have to, you know, I and I have I have friends of mine that are are heady intellectuals, and they have no fucking idea about the world, really. You know, they're incapable of sitting down with with somebody on the side of the road or a homeless person down on their luck or just whoever this person is sitting on a porch and, and insert country here and, and really appreciating what they have to say and vice versa. You know, people that, that have no affinity for uh, knowledge through, through literature or, or, or things of, of that nature. And, uh, and they have nothing to say to, to the person who has spent dedicated their life to the pursuit of knowledge. And it's like, why? I'm lucky, man. I, I have both. I genuinely, I genuinely have both. And a, when I say a, an affinity for it, just a love for it. I, I like bouncing between those two conversations and those two worlds and, and that reality because I like speaking to people that are that are much smarter than me. And and, and I, it's nothing for me to be quiet. Like I, I'm, a, I'm a good listener. Again, it's it's I, I like having like. Uh, the least amount of knowledge in a room, you know, and because uh, I'll leave there with something, and and then speaking to someone who sees the world in a way that that I that I I don't or I haven't been introduced to, and uh, yet I kind of come from that. It's weird, like my background and kind of where I come from, and 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 where I am kind of now in my life is kind of a, a mix of all of those things, and and every line in this poem is something that that one should aspire to live there to live up to. It is beautifully constructed piece of verse, isn't it? And it's very, very popular here in the UK. I think it was voted them the most popular poem in the English language. And yes, yeah. Um, it, it's it's something in it resonates with everyone. Everyone who has aspirations to behave well and do better. Yeah. And uh, and as you say, there are many people in the world who are on transmit and not on receive. Yeah. And this is a poem that urges you at times. Yeah. Uh, to put your ear to the ground and to listen and to think about your place in the world. And perhaps people are doing that more a little bit these days. Now we're all having to hold hands and keep fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> While this this cloud of doom has come down on us. Yeah. But a, a great choice, uh, Walton. Uh, uh, lovely to revisit that poem. The hits, one that perhaps people in, in particular in the UK think, oh, I know if. And actually, when I read it today, I realised I hadn't read it for thirty years at least. So. Long time. Thank you. Thank you for that. I'm going to move you now to a gig, a live music experience. And there are a couple you've sent you've sent along. And I want, first of all, to ask you about what it was like to see Stevie Wonder perform live in New Orleans uh, the uh, the year after the uh, Hurricane Katrina. Tell me about that experience. (laughs) I was down there with my 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 wife, who was a, a girlfriend at the time and and my 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 brother-in-law, who um, is a, a a big part of uh, moved the move towards uh, solving the, the climate crisis in, in the world, and he's kind of been at it for a long time. and And we got an invitation to go down to New Orleans, and and to see kind of what was happening a, a year into it by the by the by the mayor and a few other people. And you know, after looking at that, and it's one of my favorite cities in, in the world. I was conceived in New Orleans. And and I've done you know four or five movies there, and, and I know a lot of people there, and and I just love it. It's uh, not just one of the greatest cities in America; it's one of the greatest cities in um, in the world. And this after it was so heavy. Every day was so heavy. And and this one particular night with a, a, a group of people, we went to this famous bar in the quarter called DBAs, and um, it's an unbelievable jazz club uh, right there on the on the street where a lot of jazz clubs are. And we started drinking and, and we're having a really good time. And, and there was no one there, 
know, it was, uh, I don't know, maybe 50 people in the whole joint. And, uh, and we were just kind of, uh, dancing and celebrating just kind of the way, you know, they, they lived their life in, in New Orleans. And, uh, and about one o'clock in the morning, you know, the band was kind of playing and, and they said, you know, we have a special guest here tonight. <laughs> and he's just kind of stopped in and, and, and we looked up, um, and there was uh, Stevie Wonder. No way. And and he got up on stage, man, and he did he did a set. He did like five songs, and wow. And everyone couldn't they couldn't fucking believe it. they couldn't believe it. There he <laughs> yeah. There's Stevie Wonder. Um, uh, you know, here here we go, Sir Sir Duke, right there. And uh, and and we all just listened to this music and and, and his music, and and danced and celebrated. And he was, you know, so gracious with his time and and his talent and, and uh yeah i'm just glad i got to see it that's an amazing stroke of good fortune isn't it yeah just the moment yeah. that your path should cross like that it's really something but i mean like that's people that love music they all we all like you have that story like what like what is that story where were you when was luck on your side what bar did you kind of walk into or you know what uh, piece of information did you go on the street? What was it? Well, I for me, I do remember going to a gig in London at the old. There's a venue in London called the Rainbow, which is a music venue that's not a music venue anymore, and it was for a CND gig, campaign of nuclear for nuclear disarmament, in about 1981 or something. So I go along there, see two or three of the good bands of the day, Gang of Four, Wasted Youth, good bands, and as I'm going in, yeah, place is about half full or half empty, depending on which way you look at it. Yeah. Uh, they said, oh, the jam are here tonight. The jam were the biggest band in the UK that year. Wow. And I said, yeah, wow. Pinch of salt, you know. Yeah. Is this when you were a teenager? Is this when you were a teenager? Is this when you were an angry, angry teenager? 15 years old, I had the jam on my turntable in my headphones morning, noon and night. Yeah. They said, the jam are here tonight. And uh, halfway through the gig, a couple of bands had done their sets. Everything's going well. Someone comes out. We've got a special guest. Please welcome the jam. No, that was the intro. <laughs> and Paul Weller came forward and the, Rick Buckler and Bruce Foxton, and they came and they and he said, this is called Going Underground, and he played Going Underground. And there was a surge to the front of the stage. And rather like uh, the story wow. you tell, I think they played four songs maybe. Yeah. And then they were gone. Wow. And I sit here now, 40 years later. Wow. <laughs> and the excitement and the thrill of it is right in me still you know yeah those moments those days you know this is why we're this is why they're pillars this is why they're such strong things <laughs> let me just give you one more little little experience i didn't tell you this before but uh i, I did this movie when i was like in my early 20s called the apostle mm. with robert duvall and um and and it, it was one of those you know seminal kind of pillar experiences in my life he's a great 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 actor isn't he yeah he's a, just a great man you know <laughs> and uh but in, in this movie was um it was it was bobby and uh and and june carter cash right johnny's mm -hmm. johnny's wife and farrah fawcett and, and miranda richardson there's a number of people and there was this uh, uh party and i had just kind of got down there but they had been down there for for a little bit and uh, i got invited to this party and, and it was just at Bobby's house, the house that he had rented. And there was not many people there. It was like, I don't know, 20, 25 people, something like that. And Bobby sat down with June Carter Cash and Johnny Cash and played for like three hours for this small group of people. Wow. And it was like, oh my God, we're seeing something. I can't believe this is happening. Like these three people just played 
everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, see Johnny and, and June that close, man. Yeah. You know, as a young man, I was like 24 years old and, and Bobby to kind of be in there too. That was, that was, I mean, it wasn't like a public concert, but it was just like being at the right place at the right time. It was cool. That is, that's amazing. And did, did Robert Duvall give you acting tips at one time? Is that right? I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, I, everybody has their, their people. Like, you know, I, I mean, I'm not an urban kid, so, so it wasn't Robert De Niro or Al Pacino for me. It was, it was Bob Duvall. And, uh, and, and, uh, yeah, you know, I, I, my teacher kind of talked about the way in which, uh, you know, he approaches, uh, the work like Sir Anthony Hopkins and like Jessica Tandy and that it's a child's game and, and you just turn yourself over to an imaginary set of circumstances and, uh, you read the story 250 times, it's pretty simple, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I just asked him, you know, whether or not that was true. And he said, yeah, it's no more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. It's very simple. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it was, um, it was one of the, one of the a great experience for me yeah and this has been a great experience man I, I can't tell you how much i've enjoyed this conversation i'm loving this conversation and i and we have to we have to wrap it up in a minute and i and i regretfully before we do could you just tell me about your um experiences in a little a memory of your experiences in india in varnasi the, the pillar was a, a memory uh-huh that's right. And, I, and I, this is a, a, a memory, but a memory that's not even really a, a memory because I feel like I constantly kind of relive that experience in the sense that it says like you walking up to that stage. It's as fresh to me now as it was, you know, 15 years ago. And, mm-hmm. and I and I, you know, I, I um, like we all have in our lives, you know, I, I've experienced tragedy and, um, and, on a, and on a number on a few occasions and, and one was almost insurmountable for me and uh, the loss of a, of a spouse. And uh, I, I was really kind of set adrift um, after this experience and, and, you know, without going too deep into it, but, you know, looking for a way to continue to live, you know, for like three years, it was just kind of set adrift and uh, just trying to figure it out. And, and it, all, all of this walking and all of this, you know, all of these experiences and travel were kind of leading to this moment. And, and I had been in India for I don't know, like like a month at that by that time, and, and it was uh, you know one one really cool experience after another, and a confirmation of like this is why you want to live, and like this is amazing, and and all these things. And I had gotten to this town Varanasi, and you know it's like one of the holiest cities like in in India, and that's saying a lot because you can throw a rock right and hit a holy city in in India. They're everywhere. Everybody has a festival. But um, after you know after kind of being in this town and it's a place that I really wanted to go to and. And, you know, he got this little boat and kind of went out in the river and, and, and took these photographs and, and just kind of looking at, at all of this kind of going on around me and everything was kind of going on in the river and, and the bodies, uh, you know, are burned right there on the edge of the river and then being their ashes are dumped in the river or holy men are being dumped off in front of the boats. I and mean, it's, it's pretty, when I say chaotic, um, there's a lot going on. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, theologically speaking, there's a lot going on. And, um, and there was a lot going on with me and, and I, uh, this, this one particular day is kind of one of the last days I was there. I was just in a, I was really down as, uh, when I say I was down, I, I was kind of, I think I had hit rock bottom and, um, and I was, uh, you know, while I was sitting on the gats and I was walking down on the river's edge and, uh, taking all of this in. And I, I just, I couldn't stop crying. It was uncontrollable, um, emotionally. It's, you think about it now, right? It comes back up. And, uh, and I turned, you know, without any aim as walking back up these stairs and, uh, 
And I just got to this one step kind of near the top under this bridge. And, um, and I said, that's it, man. I can't, I can't, I can't take another step. I can't be this person anymore. I can't think this way anymore. I can't, I can't live my life this way any, anymore. And I, 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 I was shaking and I didn't know, I didn't know what to, like, what to do. I just knew that I, I needed, I needed from the inside out to become something different. And in that moment, you know, we're like standing there sh shaking, like uh, not taking a step, literally saying, I can't, I can't take another fucking step. I can't do this. I can't be this person. I, somebody, this voice kind of came out behind me and I'm, I'm going to do a bad uh, Indian accent. <laughs> but someone said, uh, you know, would you like to have a massage? And uh, that's horrible uh, for, for all of my Indian friends out there. Um, and I, and I, and I thought it was inside my head. Oh, wow. And then, and then the, and the person said it again, would you like to have a massage? And I turned around and this guy with the most beautiful eyes was, was looking right up at me. And, uh, and I said, yes. And without taking another step, man, the guy unfolded his, uh, nasty, dirty card piece of cardboard, you know, like, uh, at, at my feet. And I just nailed down and, uh, I laid there on this, on these steps and, um, and he, uh, he just started touching me and massaging my back. And it was just this, you know, for him, it was a, a buck, but for me, it was a confirmation of the love that's in this world and what I kind of needed in that moment. And, and over the course of this experience, it must've been five or 10 minutes. Alan, I felt, I fell in love with myself. You know, I, I found the grace that the universe had extended me. I finally was able to extend to myself mm -hmm. and, and I became okay with all of my transgressions and, and the things that, that I had done wrong in this world and all the wrongs that I felt had been done me mm -hmm. and, um, and, and the anger that I had towards the world and the anger that I had towards myself and the shame that I had towards myself. And, and in that moment, I, and I, look, I mean, it could have happened in Douglasville, Georgia. It could have happened on Portobello road. It could have mm -hmm. happened here in my home. It was that day. That was the moment. Mm -hmm. And it's like, man, I don't know what's going to happen if this doesn't happen today. And it happened and it happened for me after that moment, my life has been forever changed. I mean, and, uh, and that is a, a memory that, you know, it's, it's a, it's the, the line, you know, it was, that was the crossing of the Rubicon for me, not to say that I don't have bad days or I don't get down. I, I do. I am a mercurial, uh, you know, uh, emotionally all over the place guy, um, at times, but I always come back to that, and I and I and I found a center that is uh, unshakable, and a, and a and a truth um, that is irrefutable, and, um, and that's it. That's an amazing story, and so eloquently told. Uh, what I sometimes do is I like to play uh, the Jimmy Cliff song "Better Days Are Coming," and I <laughs> and I think of Jimmy Cliff as the person who maybe would have said something. That's pretty cool, but. What you've done, Walton Goggins, apart from being such an engaged and engaging guest, and so it's been such a, a privilege to spend this time with you, but you've taken us through a, a list, a group of disparate people from different countries and different backgrounds who've held out a hand to you and taken a hand to you, given you some music, made you some food, given you a massage, <laughs> taking you around a desert. People have connected with you and you've never forgotten them. And, and I know that 
as I sit here talking to you and I can see you in, my, in the little window on my screen that they haven't forgotten you either and you've made these powerful connections because you are that person you are on transmit and you are always on receive and so that's uh, that's something that's uh, we can all learn from it I just say good for you Walton Goggins good for you for having all these great memories and uh, I wish you well and uh, love to your wife and little Augustus right back at your family mate and have a great 50th this year whatever yeah, it may be man. yeah <laughs> and you know what I know I know that that I, I don't know I feel like we'll get an opportunity at some point to share a table together and I look forward to that man in person that would be wonderful Wharton Goggins thank you very much all right man thank you so much for it, man right back at you buddy all right Alan be well my friend thank you